When I was reading Hannah's powerfully prophetic song that we heard Tiffany proclaim so beautifully this morning, I know that Mary must have paid very good attention in synagogue when someone was reading from the scroll of 1 Samuel. Mary's Magnificat echoes so much of Hannah's song. The full will be empty, the empty will be full. Hannah is very clearly Mary's foremother in the faith. And when I read of John the Baptizer's life, his call to repentance so powerfully proclaimed by Weldon this morning, his call to repentance to radically transformed thinking and living to an upending of the world's priorities, when I read of the fire in his belly, I know that he too must have paid very good attention in synagogue when someone was reading from the scroll of 1 Samuel. John the baptizer's wild and woolly life and his near-crazed prophetic zeal echo the heart of Hannah's song, too. Hannah is very clearly John's foremother in the faith. Hannah sang her revolutionary song long before Mary sang her revolutionary song, long before John the baptizer lived his revolutionary life. And I can more than imagine, I can bear witness to and attest to the fact that Hannah's revolutionary song shaped and formed both Mary and John. Mary's revolutionary song Zechariah's song, the Psalms, and the poetry of Isaiah all companion us each Advent season. We return to these texts year after year after year after year. And this year, we name even more explicitly our grounding in these revolutionary songs, as well as some of these more contemporary songs and stories of how singing sustains our hopes, our commitments, our movements for a just peace, our plotting for revolution. I recall with an overwhelming sense of awe and gratitude the afternoon that I spent in the presence of a living hero, Bernice Johnson Reagan, daughter of a black Baptist preacher and devoted church lady in southwest Georgia, Graduate of the esteemed Spelman College, Bernice organized, marched, sat in, and went to jail as a leading member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, otherwise known as SNCC. Along with a couple of other young leaders of the movement, Bernice founded the Freedom Singers that we just heard about in our children's story today. But some of you may actually know her best from a later musical group that she organized, Sweet Honey in the Rock. I have a friend who recently asked what poems I have been turning to in these hard days. And I responded with a couple of answers, including Wendell Berry's uh, The Peace of Wild Things, When Despair in Negroes. But even more, I find myself turning to Sweet Honey in the Rock more than poems. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me round. Ain't gonna let no jailhouse turn me round. Keep on walking, keep on a-talking, marching up to freedom land. 
Ain't gonna let segregation turn me around. Ain't gonna let race hatred turn me around. Ain't gonna let Mississippi turn me around. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. And this, Sweet Honey's gorgeous musical setting for Ella Baker's prophetic words. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Until the killing of a black man, black mother's son, is as important as the killing of a white man, white mother's son. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. That's Bernice. She's a fierce and faithful prophet, a singing warrior using her struggle-honed voice to lead a movement in song. I came to spend an afternoon in her presence when I was still a student at Isla's School of Theology, and Dr. Vincent Harding and his daughter, Rachel Harding, were running the Veterans of Hope Project preserving the oral history of the civil rights movement, leaders of the black-led freedom movement of the South. Reflecting very specifically on religious faith and its role in democratic renewal. And I remember most poignantly the story Bernice told about how I songs became we songs when white folks joined the movement. You heard it in the story today. We started with I shall overcome, became we shall overcome. I'm going to tell it in, uh, in Bernice's words. That story that has stuck with me to this day. About how these I songs became we songs. If you've got a group of people and all of them are saying I, you actually have a group. If you have a group of people and they are saying we, you don't know who's going to do what. And you know, just try to organize something. You say, we gonna bring food tonight. If you are the nervous wreck organizer, you will leave that meeting and you will end up bringing enough food for everybody because you won't know who or if anybody's gonna bring anything. So you're the one who comes in, you've got the vegetables and the chicken and the cake just in case because nobody said, I'm bringing this, I'm bringing that. You don't get a group until you've got some individuals who will say, I'm in. So you've got these collective expressions in the African-American tradition that are I songs. Bernice speaks. This is a manuscript. And those songs are a way to express the group. However, one of the wonderful things about evolution of songs, she calls it wonderful, she's more gracious maybe than I would be. One of the wonderful things about evolution of songs is that the change of something, some of the songs to we documents black people coming together with a predominantly white left that's heavily intellectual about collectivism in groups. They tell us very quickly, I means individualism, and we expresses the group. We means we're together, according to the white folks. And we looked at them and we said, okay, if you need it, we. Because basically the important thing is you're here, and if in order to be here you need this we, we're going to give you this we. You got this we. 
We'll do all the we's you need. And so you get a document of when another presence joined in collaboration and commitment against racism by following the changes in the words of the song. I'll never forget Bernice telling this story of how important it is in the black community to say, I, I will overcome. And then to create a group when we all say I together. I remember, too, her telling the story of flipping, which was a common thing to happen in the civil rights movement in song. And she described so powerfully the first time that it happened for her. And it happened in her, for her in the presence of a very large group. And she was singing, a good old favorite, woke up this morning with my mind, stayed on Jesus. And all of a sudden, she flipped it to freedom. Woke up this morning with my mind, stayed on freedom. And she recalled how this just happened without having consciously choosing to have this flipping happen. And then she realized as a young person that these songs of her faith, these songs that she had been shaped by, formed in, these songs actually spoke to her experience. And she would do that flipping then all the time. Because Jesus, freedom, it was the same song. I'm aided by this powerful little booklet that was published by the Hardings and their Veterans of Hope in remembering some more stories. The story of how they sang more than talked, especially when they were in jail, Bernice reports. Singing in jail like Paul and Silas before her, like Mary singing in the belly of the empire before them, like Hannah singing under occupation before them all. When they talked, she said, they felt the diversity and the tension in the group. And when they sang, she reports, they felt their union. They felt their common cause. And so they sang. And when the talking turned tense, they returned to song. And in their singing, they were restored again and again in hope and in strength. The song isn't the product, Bernice Johnson Reagan prophesies. It's not about the song. The song is just a way to get to the singing. And the singing is also not the final product, according to Bernice Johnson Reagan. The singing is just a way to get to the community. It's a way of building community. And I think that we Mennonites know something about that one. I recall being taught at one point along the way in a course at some time that Menos have not truly gathered for worship until we've sung. That there can be all kinds of words that happen before the first hymn. But it's in the singing of that first hymn that we are gathered, that we are knit together as a body. We know this somehow in our bodies, that the song isn't the product, but is a way to get to the singing. And that the singing isn't the product, but a way to get at the building community. This I learned to put into words, thanks to Bernice. Bernice also talks about first learning and knowing this from her church singing growing up. I'm going to read just a little bit more here, where Bernice reflects on church singing. During the service, the music was made for us. The sound is everywhere. The sound always started from a seated position. Nobody was standing. 
The song was raised from a seated position, and then people joined in. Nobody ever got to the end of a line without having company. People would just creep in and grow the song. People would just creep in and grow the song. It makes me think of what happened a couple weeks ago, the first Sunday post-election, when I had the kids up front and had them join me in this little light of mine. And boy, by a few words in, all of you clearly wanted to sing along. (laughs) Crept right in and grew the song. Happened again this morning with Amy and I shall overcome, we shall overcome. All of us creeping in, growing the song, building community, knitting ourselves together. Movements need music. Bernice Johnson Reagan knew this. Paul and Silas knew this. Mary and Hannah, our foremothers of revolutionary songs, certainly knew this. Movements need music. Movements still need music. God's revolutionary reign here on this earth needs song. I learned from Bernice that movements are comprised of eyes, and so I'll speak for me now, rather than imposing my white ideas about collectivism on Bernice. I'm going to learn from her. I need singing. I need the singing that you all and I do together. If I'm going to turn toward John the Baptizer's revolutionary life and call, rather than away from his hard words, if I'm going to turn toward him, if I'm going to turn toward his imploring to repent, to turn, to in the words of Paul and not John, to be conformed, to be not conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. If I have a prayer of turning towards that being not conformed to the world, then I'm going to need some singing with all of you. If I'm going to turn toward the revolutionary upheaval of Hannah's prophetic song, I'm going to need some singing with y'all. If I'm going to show up for one more Black Lives Matter action, and then another after that, and then another after that, I'm going to need the sustenance that our singing offers me. If I'm going to make one more call, write one more email on behalf of our water protectors at Standing Rock, if I'm going to make yet another call, write yet another email, I'm definitely going to need the rich food of our singing, feeding my soul. If I'm going to face the possible registration of Muslims in this country or the building of the wall along our southern border or the blanket turning away of all refugees, if I'm going to face any of that in the coming years, I can assure you that I'm going to need our singing running through my veins. If I'm going to be a speaker of truth or a bearer of hope, I need to sing that truth and that hope with my community. Our singing, in other words, at least for me, is not superfluous. It's not a petty waste of time. It's not something we do to escape the world. For me and for movements across time and space, that singing is food. It is sustenance. 
So please, my community, will you sing with me? Let us break bread and sing together, finding that our parched places are watered, that our empty places are filled, our tired places are revived, our battered places are healed, our weary places are sustained. In our song, in our breaking bread together, in our song, may it be so.